week we played a song from their previous album. This week we're playing a song from their new album, Enigma of the Deep. The band is the Amphibians, and this song is the title track from that album. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. Check them out on Facebook or Reverb Nation or CD Baby. When you're done listening to this episode of the podcast, devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, I'm your writer, producer, host, Derek M. Cook, and yeah, I'm a little behind on getting this episode out, had some production delays, and I swear it had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that Wednesday night I went to go see The Screaming School at the Joy Cinema, and then Thursday night I went to go see Plan 9 from Outer Space on the rooftop of the Hotel Deluxe in downtown Portland. Yep, had nothing to do with that at all. Anyway, let's talk about this week's episode. I'm joined by a first-timer here on Monster Kid Radio. However, you've heard her voice on previous episodes of the B-Movie cast. Her name is Kelly Hogaboom, and she is a huge fan of actor Ray Milland. And well, Ray Milland did some genre films, so of course we had to have her on here to talk about the movie X, The Man with the X-Ray Eyes. That's going to be coming up, and you know what? Let's just dive into it right after this. to state that the grandchildren of some of the people in this dinner will not be born on Earth. come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead, zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the earth. Plan 9 from outer space. Starring the most frightmarish cast ever, Bella Lugosi, the seductive vampira, and Thor Johnson as the walking dead. Turn off your electrode gun! No! No! Stop him, Dennis! I can't get it! It's Jeff! Stop him, you fool! Bullets bounce off their bodies. Rockets, missiles, jets cannot stop their death ships. What earthly power can stop this terror? For a glimpse of things to come, see this blast of screen suspense. For it could be happening right now. Hello, everyone. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for NashyCast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashy. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes. Now, what is it that qualifies two Southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain, and I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi Cast yeah. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. Uh, yes. If you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures, <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love werewolves, mm-hmm. vampires, 
unidentifiable beasts or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac to <laughs> Yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks Shem- like melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. How of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Horror Rises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Oh, yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. picture that reaches its climax in shocking horror. Its impact is so terrifying that it may have an unforeseen effect. It may kill you. Therefore, its producers feel they must assure free burial services to anyone who dies of fright while seeing the screaming skull. Be sure to bring someone with you who can identify you when you see the screaming skull. Only this lost soul, half man, half ghost, knows the secret of the living dead's curse, the torturous agony that saturates these walls and makes the shutters creak with almost human pain, terrorizing those who dare to love with the maddening, jealous shriek of the screaming skull. What diabolic demon dares touch the screaming skull? What ghoulish thoughts control this poor man's demented mind? What does he know? What secret, horrifying and blood-curdling, is he hiding? Nothing is more terrifying than the spine-chilling breath of a vampire woman. Ghostly, ghastly, as unreal as a will-o'-the-wisp, as real as the skull. She was a regular contributor to the B-Movie cast there for a while, and now I've got her on Monster Kid Radio, straight from Bigfootville. Kelly Hogaboom, welcome to the podcast. Hello. We've been chasing each other around for a while. I wanted to get her on the show because I know she likes Ray Milan, and he did a handful of monster movies, genre films. Mm-hmm. So we got to have you on the show to talk about that. we got to talk about probably the only Academy Award-winning actor to be in a movie that we talk about on Monster Kid Radio, which is pretty cool. Yeah, his career is quite diverse. I mean, it's all over the map. He was a hard worker. He did one of my favorite films ever and had the shortest Oscar Academy acceptance speech ever. And then he did movies like Frogs and The Thing with Two Heads. It seemed like a good idea at the time. The white bigot was dying and the black soul brother needed time to prove his innocence. More power to you, brother. I want to transplant my head on a healthy body. I think I like to donate my body to science after all. So they transplanted the white head onto the black body. Who would have suspected that neither would care for the idea too much? What are you guys doing to me? Shut up. Where's the rest of you? We are joined together temporarily. 
Um, I'm a huge fan, huge fan. <laughs> All over the place. You know, I don't know as much about Ray Malin as I should, although he made one of my favorites, kind of sort of post-apocalyptic or apocalyptic type movies, I believe in the 50s. We'll, we'll get to that. But one thing that we do on Monster Kid Radio, before we get into the topic at hand, we have a game that we play called The Classic Five. Oh, no. Got a deck of cards here. <laughs> okay. Uh, give, give it a good shuffle. This is a, a deck of maybe about 100 questions or so. Each card is a this or that, yes or no, which movie do you prefer over the other one, style type question. There are no wrong answers unless you're completely off base, and then I'll let you know. Okay. Uh, but we do five of these, and uh, just randomly here, uh, I've got them ready to go. If you are ready to play the classic five, Kelly. Okay, all right, let's do it. All right, card number one. What classic monster movie that you've only seen on TV, VHS, DVD, whatever, do you want to see on the big screen? Oh my gosh, that is an awesome question. Um, I guess the one that's coming to mind is Tarantula, just because I am going to see it on the big screen here in August. And um, I haven't seen it on, I think I've seen it on like a 12-inch laptop screen. So I'm kind of looking forward to that one. But what if circumstances were to magnify one of them in size and strength? took it out of its primitive world and turned it loose in ours. Then expect something that's fiercer, more cruel and deadly than anything that ever walked the earth. Even science was stunned. The new atomic miracle should have been mankind's greatest boon. Instead, when such power to cause phenomenal growth proved dangerously unstable, man was confronted with his most shocking blunder. The isotope triggered our nutrient into a nightmare. A blunder that transformed a tiny insect into the hundred-foot spider that was now ravaging the panic-stricken countryside. How are you going to see it in August? Is it showing in your area? Yeah, we're having a sort of a miniature film fest here at the 7th Street Theater in Hoquiam called Hot August Frights, and we have ten... I guess genre films and Tarantula is part of the run this year also they have The Bat they have a handful of monster movies showing up and uh, last year I watched like Creature from the Black Lagoon you know it's a good chance to get to see like you say uh, some of these films on the big screen especially because I live out here in the boonies I don't get a lot of access to that kind of thing that is awesome it's called Hot August Frights yes August 13th um, at the 7th Street Theater in Hoquiam and that's about a 2 hour 15 minute drive from where you're at and you consider yourself invited We'd love to see you up here. Oh, no, you said that. Now I'm going to try to figure out a way to get there. We'll see. You, you need to come. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, Tarantula on the big screen, that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, and I don't, I saw Tarantula many, many years ago, so I don't even remember if it's a good film. It's just that I like the big bug movies, you know, so I'm, I'm all over it. It's hard to go wrong with a John Agar film. You've got that right. There you go. All right, card number two. Nosferatu or Dracula. Which Dracula are we talking about? The, the Bella Lugosi? Yeah, typically, yeah, that's what okay. we look at, but it's up to you, however you want to interpret it. I'm going to go with the Bella Dracula on that one. I am Dracula. I, but I have a huge soft spot for the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula that nobody seems to like, but I love it so much. It's one of my favorite movies to put on when I'm sewing because it's just got so much drama and I love it so much. But yeah. If we're going with the old black and white, I'm going with Bella Lugosi. You, you mentioned Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I thought, you know, you do a lot of. Um, is it fair to say costuming or, or your own designing fabric, you know, sewing? So Yeah. And that movie's got a lot of that to look at. I mean, from the armor to what Lucy's wearing. I mean, it's got some gorgeous costumes. Yeah, I actually made a blazer two summers ago that was based on his, like, bloody-looking armor in that film. The red, like, it almost looks like muscle fiber. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big costume freak. That's some good stuff there in that film. 
And it's got gorgeous music, so I'll give it that. Yeah. Uh, gorgeous yeah. music. And the composer's name I can't pronounce, but it's gorgeous music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so card number three. Elvira or Vampira? Elvira, and it's funny you should say that because we just watched her um, Mistress of the Dark film two nights ago, and <laughs> I am um, considering trying to put her dress together for a Halloween costume for me this year. I do love uh, Vampira, but I'm, you know, with my age, I'm kind of an Elvira gal. Like, I grew up on Elvira. I, I follow her on Twitter today. You know, she's great. She's hilarious. Uh, have you ever had a chance to meet her at a convention or anything like that? I've never been to a convention. Oh, Kel, she's adorable. She's such a sweetheart. I've seen her. Like, you know, she'll show up on TV. Like, she was on one of those antique shows where someone was trying to get her a necklace that was made out of teeth. And so I, you know, kind of got to see her scene. And she seems to have done very well for herself and seems to really enjoy what she's doing. Yeah, she's pretty awesome. I like her a lot. So I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let's offer. Yeah. (laughs) All right, card number four. What one black and white monster movie would you like to see colorized? Oh my gosh. I don't think I, I, I'm not incredibly interested in that. I I like them black and white. I feel terrible saying that, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not anti, but I I like them as it is. So maybe creature from the black lagoon. That might be kind of fun because I've seen the poster colorized Mm -hmm. so much. Have they colorized that one yet? Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure somebody out there has done something with it. I've seen color photos. You know, there's right. a lot of color photos right. out there in the poster, of course. I do wonder if it was ever colorized, if it would have the big red lips that uh-huh. you see on some of the posters, which I, I don't know if I really like. Yeah, I don't know if you saw I made a creature from the Black Lagoon hat a couple years ago, and I had to decide about a bunch about the colors um, because the photos, I wasn't sure. I'm like, is that what the actual color was or has that been you know done in, in post or whatever? So, yeah, I know it would change the whole look of the monster, I think. I want to see a picture of that hat. Is it on your Facebook page? Because I know what I'll do when I get done recording here. It's probably buried in there, but I can, okay. I'll can i send you one because I, I totally loved making it. and um, Very cool. A, a surprising number of people recognize it here in Hokuim and Aberdeen, which is cool. Right on. All right, final card, final question. Favorite mad scientist? Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Favorite mad scientist. But now my, my mind is bl- drawing a blank. I mean, we just watched a film with a mad scientist. Um, I mean, sort of a mad scientist. He ends up going mad. So I guess I, I'm going to... I'm going to say Young Frankenstein, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked that performance and found it totally appealing and, of course, hilarious. And I I don't think you cover a lot of comedy. And I know Young Frankenstein is not old enough for this podcast. But, Eh. yeah, that's my my mad scientist pick today. That's a good one. Um, I I haven't watched it in a while. I I have been thinking about it, though, lately. And you know what? I I think we could probably justify a talk about it here on the show. It's my show. I'll do what I want. There you go. You're the boss. So, well, it's got so many uh, uh, references and homages and analogs to the classics that we cover. It's got set designs, have set pieces from Mm -hmm. the classics. So it's it's a respectful comedy, which I really like. I actually love homage films and spoof films, and I kind of love the discussion of when a film is more of an homage than a spoof, which, of course, is wildly off topic for today. But if you're ever down for that talk, I'm I'm so with it. Yeah, I've got a handful of... uh, previous guests who enjoy a lot of those types of movies. So, mm-hmm. you know, it might be an interesting roundtable. So, yeah, let's let's come back to let's do that at some point. I think that might be fun yeah. to do. So, that was the Classic Five. Thanks for playing, yeah. Kelly. <laughs> right, thanks. I survived. Okay. <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to make this available out there somehow. Some way. Figure out how to yeah. print it and sell it cheaply. We'll, we'll make it happen. I was going to say, I like the study for tests, so that was a little bit stressful. <laughs> well, you know, kind of warm things up a little bit, you know. Okay. There we go. August 14th. Notes on experiment designated X. 
Experimental subject, myself, James Xavier. X, the most fantastic experiment you have ever taken part in, presents Ray Moland in his most challenging role since his Academy Award-winning Lost Weekend. X, the man with the X-ray eyes. Are you all right? It's like a splitting of the world. More light than I've ever seen. Filled with light. X, the man with the X-ray eyes, tries to help the most desperate in our society and enjoys all the delights of secretly studying sexology. Headache? No, it's just my eyes. A doctor with the power to see what others cannot believe. He can overcome the unknown, save lives, and invade the glamour gambling casinos of Las Vegas and defy the goddess of chance. Don't draw. Don't draw. The next card's a face card. And Harry, you better go for the sheriff right now. All right, so the comment at hand, though, and I'm sure you probably didn't have to do a lot of studying because you love this actor, Ray Milan in X, the man with the X-ray eyes. You know... I don't know when the first time you saw it was, but the first time I saw it, I was kind of resistant, hesitant to really get into it. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I watched it. I mean, I was on board within the first few minutes, but the first time I saw it, I believe it was probably about 10 years ago at the Lovecraft Film Festival here in Portland. Uh And and I didn't understand why it was being shown there. It's like, there's no no Cthulhu. It's not Lovecraft, you know, whatever. But by the time I got into it, it's like, oh, this is totally Lovecraftian. And not only that, it's really cool. Yeah, and I'm wondering if it has the Lovecraft reputation because of Stephen King's, like he kind of famously wrote about the last scene and he compared it to Lovecraft. So I'm wondering if that's how it got in there. Because I wouldn't have picked it for a particularly Lovecraftian um, piece, but I can see the connection when it when someone makes it for me. At the very end, it's pretty obvious. But that whole, I've seen too much going insane based on what I've seen kind of thing. I mean, that's, that's a total classic Lovecraftian trope. Yeah. A lot of mad scientists go on that journey as well. So it's kind of fitting that that was the last card in the classic five, because a lot of mad scientists have that arc as well. And I love it. And I love to watch it. And Ray Milan does such a great job in this. Do you remember the first time you saw this film? I think it would have been 2013 because I, I saw it um, along with what I think of as a companion film, the premature burial um, from 1962. Mm-hmm. No. Just the two of us, together. A woman possessed by love. (laughs) A man obsessed by terror. Only Edgar Allan Poe, who knew intimately the tortures of madness, could create such ever-increasing suspense. (laughs) Only an artist of unique talent and unusual sensitivity could live so demanding a role, believing he is destined to be buried alive. No matter who he destroyed, no matter how desperately he fought, his life became a nightmare of death. You're dead! Until reality and madness became one. His father was prematurely interred. I heard his voice. All right, then prove it. I will. 
are about to enjoy an experience in extreme terror. I'm alive. Can't you hear me? I'm alive, alive, alive. Someone help me. I think that's the only Corman Poe film that didn't star Vincent Price, but I'm not a Corman expert. So those two were made about the same time, same director, both had Ray Milland. So I, I think I watched it in 2013 for the first time. I'm not sure what the situation was. I don't know if it was a budget thing or what, but yeah, Price was not available for premature burial. So Milland came in instead, which is another great film, by the way. So excellent oh, yeah. <laughs> coupling there. Uh, mm-hmm. Charles Beaumont, incredible writer, was involved with the screenplay on that. Hazel Court fan. You know what? We'll Hazel talk about Court, that at some yeah. point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll t- tell you what. I haven't talked about premature burial on the show yet. Ooh, let's 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 right. do that down the line. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. I'm Listeners, there. hold us to that. Okay. okay. <laughs> X the Man with the X-ray Eyes. Um, definitely a good mix. I mean, it's not a gothic-ish kind of movie the way Premature Burial has some of those those notes. Uh, it's it's more of a modern film. It's a contemporary film for 1963. Yeah, I think of it as a science fiction with some horror values, mm-hmm. you know, but it's definitely both that and Premature Burial, like five minutes in, I'm like, I was spooked out. Like, these are spooky premises. And the, the idea of starting to see deeper into things, I was already on board with this is creepy. And and I don't get creeped out that easily. So I actually, I love this film. And I love Roger Corman. I think he's a phenomenal filmmaker. But you know, I have a lot of normie friends. I have a lot of friends who don't watch B-movies. And so they look at a film like this and just think, this is a goofy old film. And I'm like, no, there's so much going on. Like you have to, they need to listen to the film commentary, I think, and then, then they'll get on board. No, I agree with you, especially when it comes to Roger Corman, because you mentioned Roger Corman, and you immediately think these, you know, made for TV, sci-fi channel, or SIFI, or whatever they uh-huh. call themselves these days, channel movies, which, you know, are a little goofy, you know, and, and I know they have their audience, and I know a lot of people love them, and I, I've watched Sharknado, I mean, I'm there, but, uh, you know, I feel like if you go back and look at some of his earlier work, you can really see there's a talented filmmaker here, especially when he's directing. Yeah, and um, maybe people my age are used to hearing his name in conjunction with Mystery Science Theater if if they've watched any Roger Corman at all. So they think of him as a, a bad director or someone who directed, you know, 30 films a year or, or whatever. But when you dig a little deeper, I mean, he was really, a, in my mind, a master craftsman and he did care about the films. And yeah, he he did produce them pretty quickly, but they're amazing for all of that. His filmography, and not just his horror and sci-fi stuff. I mean, he did some things. The Intruder is a fantastic film. It is non-genre at all. That's William Shatner, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think I've seen that. What's early 60s? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll it's have to get really that good. There. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Really good. But no, he was, he was a craftsman. I mean, he was a technician. He was putting movies out. You know, he, he was a workman. Mm-hmm. But he was also a craftsman. He cared about the movies looking good so they would make as much money as they could so he could afford to make the next one. And there's an art to that, I think. Absolutely. And I, and I think that if you're going to make money, you end up getting the skills. So he ended up being extremely skilled. I have, I don't know much about the man. I don't know why he got started or how, but he ended up having that skill set that it's super impressive, especially I have a few friends who dabble in filmmaking and I know how much time it takes to put a film together, even a, a small budget one. And for him, I think X-ray eyes took like two months or something like that after they wrapped shooting. I mean, that's incredible. It's pretty insane to think about. I mean, mm-hmm. this, this movie, it's, it's, 
very epic in its feel. I mean, you can kind of tell some of the things are in small sets. The, the carnival scene, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's clearly a stage somewhere. Right, right. But in terms of the story itself, we start at a hospital. We go on the run. We end up at a carnival scene. We've got this little shack set up when he's on the run again. It could have easily been a much longer film, a miniseries. I mean, there's so much happening in this story. Just things moving along so quick. I read that he initially wanted to make the film about a jazz um, saxophonist who starts experimenting with drugs. And that's how he starts to get this power. And, you know, he kind of came off of that topic and and decided to do a doctor storyline, which I think the storyline with it being a doctor is great. That would have been a really different film. That would have been a 60s like drug film. But, you know, of course, making a film in the 60s about drugs, you would have to you would have to moralize. You would have to go a certain direction. And I, I think he didn't want to do that. So he jumped on board with the doctor storyline instead and got a little bit older leading man and all of that kind of thing. So I had not heard that, but I imagine if that had happened, he would have had a much different film score. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think the film score, it was all one one person who did all the films. So the, you know, the the music in the background, but also mm-hmm. the, you know, at the party, the pop music and all of that. So that was well done. I, I felt like the score was well balanced and um, non-intrusive. You know, it was... Sometimes film scores are like really distracting and I'm like, why are they playing this music at this exact moment? Especially for these old B movies. <laughs> we sure. just watched, oh my gosh, was it the She Creature? Comes the experiences of a she creature. by Chester Morris, Marla English, Kathy Downs, Lance Fuller, Tom Conway, Frida Innescourt, and Ron Randall. It's an adventure into the occult, such as few people have known, and only those who see it can believe. You're not going for that supernatural hokum of his. I don't really know what I'm going for. I know he's a killer. Now you are traveling back through time and space. Farther, farther back. Back. Under his spell, she was both herself and another being, the she-creature seeking life sustenance from the stolen heartbeats of others. She was a woman born to be loved, and two men wanted her. One, a man whose powerful mad mind controlled her every reflex except her love. No! The other, willing to fight any odds for her love. You've been living in shadows. I want to bring you back to life. Society dances to hide the hysterical terror caused by their sudden intimacy with death. Forever closer comes the she-creature. Where the music <laughs> yeah. is just like hammering at you when nothing is happening. But anyway, um, you know, the, the score was great for this one. And yeah, I'm glad we didn't get um, treated to a bunch of jazz flute, to be honest. Yeah, well, a little handful of jazz riffs every time something scary, quote unquote, happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't that. Mm-hmm. Now, Les Baxter was the composer on this. And I'm a film score guy. I love my soundtracks. And Les Baxter is just fantastic. And he had range. He didn't just do this. He did like the some of the beach bikini movies with uh, an infinite cello. And uh, he did Panic at Year Zero, which is the one I was kind of alluding to earlier which actually is 62. I said 50s. It's actually in the 60s. Uh, but he was fantastic, and I'm a big fan of what he does. I have a lot of his music on my various iPods okay. around here. So, you know, you mentioned uh, a doctor 
beating the lead here and the story. I mean, just kind of a high-level overview here. It's about a guy who wants to see more, more than what he can see normally, and he does it with these experimental drug eye drops, yeah. <laughs> which I would not want to put in my eyes because they just look like they burn. It's this yellow fluid, and I'm trying to imagine how they got away with putting that in the monkey's eyes. Oh my gosh, that is so terrible. Have you ever seen the state sketch monkey torture? Yeah, I, I don't like to watch monkey torture. You know, I am yeah. a vegan. But yeah, so he puts this drops in the monkey's eyes. And yeah, it looks like concentrated urine. So he, he you know, puts it in the eye, monkey's eyes and the monkey demonstrates that it can see through a screen and then the monkey dies of fright. So then he's like, I think I'm going to put this in my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so right away, I'm like, I love this film. I love yeah. it. That's his plan. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can handle it. The monkey died, but I'll be fine. So, just... They won't give me financing. I'll show him it works. Look, exactly. No, I love that. I love that. And of course, he's got his buddy. You know, is it Sam, the doctor, who is examining his eyes and he's trying to help him out a little bit? And he he has that argument with him where Doctor Sam, I forget his last name. He's played by Harold J. Stone. He's right. arguing with Ray Milan. He's playing Doctor James Xavier, or we learn. Later, he calls himself Mentalo for a little while. But uh, Dr. Brandt is telling him, no, I won't do it. Dr. Xavier (laughs) yells at him, you must. Okay. And then he's like, he's like helping him out. Here you go. Yep. Yeah, that was great. That was um, um, Harold J. Stone. He was in Spartacus and he was in Mitchell. I don't know if you are a Mr. Science Theater fan, but I'm like. (laughs) That's one of the infamous ones, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Mitchell. Um, Your your MST3K listeners are, are saying Mitchell right now. (laughs) <laughs> and then he's got his other doctor buddy is played by John Hoyt, who is always plays that uptight kind of Aryan Nazi looking grumpy dude. I I just saw him in When Worlds Collide in 1951, and he was a total jerk in that oh, film. Oh, he's great in that though. I yeah, mean, he's, yeah, he's a yeah. great villain or antagonist. Yes. Or, yeah, yeah. Because I was watching this film, and I'm I'm like, where do I know John this guy? And I, I look him up, and I'm like, I've seen some of these films, but I have this feeling about him, like he's just such a, a jerk. And when worlds collide, I'm like, oh right, when worlds collide, he's the guy in the wheelchair that, yeah, he was a nasty guy. So yeah, he um, John Hoy is I wasn't he playing the guy that kind of had the funding and chose to to cut off Xavier and and take his money, which which introduces the. That's when the action starts happening in the film mm-hmm. is when Dr. Xavier's funding is removed. So John Hoyt was the the guy that cut the funding. And then they have an, a fight in the surgery. Um, that scene was great, too. <laughs> How do you get the surgery to stop? Well, you just cut the surgeon's head with hand with the blade. Yeah. With and the everybody scalpel. else is like, okay, let's let him do it then. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine that would not fly today. No, it wouldn't. It probably shouldn't have flown then, but it would not fly today. No, I guess if you do something with enough confidence, everyone just kind of lets you do it. Yeah, that was one of those scenes my kids like, as well as the smoking, the scene where they're smoking cigarettes in the chemistry lab. (laughs) Uh, My my son was also like, you know, my kids are 12 and 14, so they don't, they've never seen smoking inside a building, let alone inside a hospital. So that was great. Oh, yeah, I had forgotten about that, actually. But when that scene played, when I watched the Blu-ray the other day, it took me right back to the first time I saw it about 10 years ago or so because when that scene happened everybody just started laughing and giggling in the theater right because it's so ridiculous now but I mean I guess back then yeah you know 
Yeah, you wouldn't bat an eye. And and to an extent, I don't bat an eye when people smoke inside a hospital in movies because I've seen so many of these old movies, you know. They're always whipping out a cigarette. Or the, I, another great antiquated scene is when Dr. Xavier explains to his lady doctor colleague, he explains how light works to her. <laughs> that was awesome. That's light. Waves of energy that excite the eye. And the nerve cells transmit this energy to the brain. A little, little bit of mansplaining there? Yeah, the, mm-hmm. we got some giggles. He's like, this is light and opens the blinds. <laughs> she's she's patiently listening. So, yeah, Diana Vanderville, she was great in this, too. So, she was a soap opera actress, I think. Oh, okay. Lot, yeah, I don't know much about her background. Yeah, Canadian and did a lot of TV, not a lot of film history um, that I'm aware of. So, yeah, so that's his real buddy is her. They they She's pretty sympathetic to him. And he gets his funding cut, and then what, what they go to a party, right? At oh, the point? party scene, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Diana's got to take Dr. Xavier, Dr. X, or you know, James, out to unwind a little bit. And he's going to take right. him to a little party, a little shindig happening. Right. And they're making a martini using, like, a syringe to put the vermouth in, I assume. So you know it was like a med student party, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. A bunch of medical students hanging out. The, the older guy comes in and... Nobody bats an eye. He's like, oh, okay, no big deal. You know, Dr. Yeah. Xavier's here. And somebody comes on to him. And, and I don't yes. know who that woman was. I tried to figure out her name in the credits. Do you know uh, anything about who she I was? I do. Um, I'm blanking on her. But I watched the DVD commentary with Roger Corman. And he named her and said she went on to have a great little career. Can't remember her name. But yeah, gorgeous woman comes up and is insisting on dancing with him. Rayma Land's dancing is like one of the best <laughs> like i'm like i still told my husband I'm like that's how i feel when i dance <laughs> like, yeah yeah it's worth watching the movie just for his little i don't know if he's trying to do the twist or what it is so, I, I have yeah. no idea what he was trying to do I, I i don't know if he knew what he was trying to do it was no. pretty awkward as if he didn't stand out enough for being the oldest guy in the room now he's gonna prove it <laughs> right <laughs> right but i guess that's one of the things i love about this film is he he had to do so much in this film. You know, that whole scene where he's seeing through the clothes and he's like looking at the naked women. That was a great scene. Like normally that would be a sleazy, gross scene. And it wasn't. He was kind of stunned that it was happening and kind of turned on and kind of like interested from a scientific point of view and kind of amused. It's a silly scene, but he did so great in that. I think he's a great worker because he he shows up to whatever film he's been asked to do and he takes it seriously. And I, I really appreciate that about him. And that scene was great, in my opinion, even though, yeah, it was a goofy, goofy scene. It's clearly one of the scenes they throw in to kind of get the kids excited because, oh, there's naked people dancing, even though you don't see anything but no. legs and shoulders. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe a couple of women's backs. But it it is such a good scene because it does show Milan really acting. I mean, the look on his face, the kind of goofiness, the... And my dear, what a lovely you know spinal right. column or whatever it is he says to Diana there while they're right. dancing. And she's totally cool with it. She's like, you're looking at me naked, you old so-and-so. Just remember that I'm a woman. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, how she can really I forget? That yeah. One up for him. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so it was Lori Summers. I just looked her up. Lori Summers is the gorgeous uh, blonde who comes up to him. And she was in a bunch of those beach, it looks like beach party, muscle beach party in the Beverly Hillbillies too. So yeah, gorgeous. Yeah, gorgeous gal. So that's the party scene. Yeah, So they have the little hee-hee, I can see through clothes. <laughs> and of course, his x-ray sight seems to be coming and going. It's not constant. 
and at this point in the film right he does tell us repeatedly and, and probably could turn this into a drinking game the number of times he keeps telling people it's cumulative mm-hmm. <laughs> i couldn't tell what that meant what does that mean cumulative does that mean he can keep seeing deeper and deeper well i mean we know what it means but what does it mean for the film i mean it's, just, it's a building up of the effect but and why can why can he see through diana's clothes but not see through her pearls like what? I've never, oh, that's I, I right. I don't understand X-ray vision. Why does it stop at a certain point? Why doesn't it? I don't know. So <laughs> this this film was great for me because I'm already confused about X-ray vision. I always have been. So so this film just cleared up a lot of issues. But me. clearly so, you need Ray Milan to mansplain how I, light I works do. for you. I, I don't know how light works. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So then let's see, after they leave the party, I think he gets in another argument with his with Dr. Sam, doesn't he? He goes back and Dr. Sam is like, this is affecting your brain and you need to stop, right? Yeah, <laughs> this, this has got to stop. Right. So they have an argument and um, <laughs> he accidentally flings his buddy, Dr. Sam, out the window. Like, and, and Diana handles it so well, or Diana handles it so well. You've got to run. Exactly. You've got to go. Yeah. Get out of here. I, and of course, that's the moment in a movie. I'm like, I would stay and explain it to the cops. Like, I, but of course, then you wouldn't have a film. But yeah, so this dummy goes flying out the window, <laughs> and it lands, and they and they show him on the ground, and it's still a dummy. I'm like, couldn't couldn't they have put a real guy on the ground? Can, like, can they just have Harold Stone lay down, lay down for a second? Yeah. I mean, pay him to lay down for a second. You know, it no, it's flying. pretty. Yeah. So the film really, it's like that Anchorman scene, you know, that escalated quickly. Yes. That, he's, yes. Now, he's not only murdered a guy or killed a guy in an accident. Now he's on the run, like immediately, like literally running downstairs. And they're showing a bunch of newspaper articles like this doctor killed this guy, you know, so it's the film blows up at this point and he's he takes off. Sure. Yeah. And then we get to that stage that's supposed to be this outside carnival scene. They filmed at the Long Beach Pier, a real carnival, and then boom, you're in a soundstage that's supposed to look like a carnival. And I think that's great. I think that's such a brilliant use of, you know, having about $6 to make a scene and being able to do it. And I I love the look of the soundstages in this film, the colors, the coordinating colors, the reality of the film, like when you're not seeing Dr. Xavier's point of view, it's all these really muted like blues and greens. I mean, the colors are just beautiful in this film. So yeah, he's in a carnival. He's now doing a, like a Karnak routine because he can see through things and he's making some money. And this is where we get introduced to Don Rickles' character. Crane, I think is his name. Which again, it took me right back to the first time I saw the film and Don Rickles shows up and I'm like, what? I'm at a Lovecraft film festival and I'm watching a movie with Don Rickles. How does that work? Yeah, and I don't know anything about Don Rickles except that he's mostly got a comedian. Um, like he was in Casino. He's done mm-hmm. some dramatic roles, but he's known for his comedy, correct? Yeah, he's an insult comic. He's, you okay. Know, he's always calling people, you know, a hockey puck. I mean, he, <laughs> he some of the comedy, some of the insults that he slings at X the Man with the X-ray eyes are kind of dialed down versions of what I know him as in terms of the comments and the jokes that he makes about people. So, yeah, it was just really odd to see him turn up. But, you know, he's not just a guy who's slinging one-liners left and right. I mean, he's actually acting and acting well for what he's doing. He was great because he was very shrewd. He was like the most dangerous element of the film because he was sort of cluing in that Ray Milland wasn't an act. And he also clued in that Ray Milland was hiding out. My share for keeping you out of the hands of the cops. Oh, I've got my power over you, Mr. Mentalo. Dr. James Xavier. I've known about you for some time. 
ever since we hit this town. But I don't care. As long as I get my share. I, I really liked him. I thought he was dark, but not quite like a villain. But he was a very dark character. So, yeah, he and Ray Moland are doing this act, and Ray Moland is making money. And this is a weak point of the film. At this point, the rest of the film is all about Ray Moland thinking he needs to get money to continue his research. And there's very little else going on in the story, really. I mean, it's just like, how do I get some money? So right now he's trying to get money working in a carnival. And um, I loved his Dr. Mentallo robe that he's got on in that scene. It was gorgeous. Oh, I love. I would love to have a Dr. Mentallo action figure. That's just oh my gosh. pretty cool looking. Oh my gosh, that is such a great idea. Yeah, he's got this gold robe that's got these appliqued jeweled like scorpions and stuff. It was great. It was a super awesome Super awesome outfit. And then uh, a couple hecklers show up. Oh, yes. It's a Roger Corman film, so we got to have some Dick Miller. Yep. Dick Miller and Jonathan Hayes, who was in Swamp Women, um, The Terror, Little Shop of Horrors. He worked with Corman a lot. So the hecklers show up. You know, Ray Moland schools him. He's the real deal. And then uh, a woman breaks her leg at the carnival, and that's where Don Rickles figures out that Ray Moland is either he was a doctor or he could use his X-ray vision to perform as like a backroom healer. And that's the next stage of the film. We leave the carnival and now Dr. Xavier is in some, you know, ghetto in a back room being a healer for poor, desperate, sick people. In another awesome set. His his office set up that little building. It's just cool. The outside and the inside. The inside is gorgeous, and you've got the, like, um, flocked wallpaper. And, I'm yeah, I loved the sets for this film, like, so much. And now Dr. Xavier is starting to feel ill. You know, he's not he's not feeling good. He's sleeping. He's got headaches. He's wearing crazy sunglasses in a vain attempt to give his eyes and his brain a break. You know, you keep using those eye drops. They're cumulative, doctor. Come <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, he keeps putting those in. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that was great. And his eyes are getting more and more red as the movie continues as well. You get longer into the movie, and he's Raymond's wearing contacts. They get kind of the bloodshot effect, and they just get worse as the film continues. They they do make some money doing this healer act. Yeah, that's when Diana somehow finds him. Right, which... They get in an argument with Don Rickles, and once again, he's on the run. He grabs Diana and grabs his suitcase, and they take off. Brain chases him out of the building. Police, police, he's a murderer! Right, exactly. He turns on him. And I was a little disappointed. I thought Crane was going to end up dead somehow. I thought that's what was going to happen. Um, but no, we just leave Crane. He's he's out of the film now. Yep. So they're driving in her big old car. She has a, I don't know what kind of car she has, but that was a gorgeous car. Some black, shiny, beautiful, early 60s something. They're taken off in her car and Dr. Xavier says, we need to head to Vegas because I can make money using my x-ray vision. But he's also kind of flipping out because he can see through too much stuff at this point. He's no longer comfortable. And he, he starts waxing philosophical about how the, the city looks. And he says, a city unborn, its flesh dissolved in an acid of light. And I just love that line. It was so creepy. Oh, I actually made a note here. The dialogue in that car ride. What do you see? The city. As if it were unborn. Rising into the sky with fingers of metal. Limbs without flesh. Girders without stone. Signs hanging without support. Wires dipping and swaying without poles. A city unborn. 
flesh dissolved an acid of light. This is where he's he's breaking. I mean, this yeah. is where the movie clearly turns Lovecraftian for me. He's breaking. He's seeing things he shouldn't see. He's seeing through things in the way he speaks and the way he describes it. It's just terrifying to think about, really. Yes. Like I said, I don't get easily spooked, and I don't know why this film did it for me, but – and Ray Milland can pull it off. Like, he – he, I, in my opinion, he didn't overdo it. He's not hamming it up. He's really suffering at this point because he can't get a break. There's nothing that can keep his vision from constantly seeing deeper. So, yeah, this is spooky. So they are driving through the desert. I have no idea where that was filmed, um, that second unit desert stuff. I don't actually know. Looked like Nevada desert to me. But. Yeah, it could have been anywhere. And really, you, you mentioned earlier about the pier and they shot the outside and they went to the stage set. Corman was notorious for this. Whenever there was something interesting, he would shoot it, hold on to it as stock footage, and then dump it into something later. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure he just had a film library of, okay, here's a whole bunch of desert shots. All right, here's a carnival shot. Here's a Ferris wheel. Let's use that somewhere you know, to save it until next time we need it. So I'm sure that's where this came from. Yeah, and, very resourceful. And the car, uh, I just went to the Internet Movie Cars database. Okay. I believe it was a 1963 Ford Galaxy. Okay. And it looks cool. It's beautiful, and it, it's huge, and I just love it. I like old cars, so yeah. I, I don't know anything about them. I just like the way they look. Same here. <laughs> yeah, so then they hit a casino that's supposed – well, no, they hit Las Vegas, and, and I guess we haven't talked about the special effects at all, but – you know, with the budget and, you know, they couldn't really afford to do much except film with like filters and then overexpose or, you know, they have these pretty rudimentary effects to show you what Xavier's vision looks like. But when they drive into Vegas at night, that's pretty cool. They show all these, you know, all the neon signs. They look crazy. They look like you're looking through like three glass windows that have rain on them or something. So this is showing you that, you know, Xavier's on overload at this point. And then they're in a supposedly a Vegas casino. It's another soundstage. And yeah, that <laughs> seems pretty funny. So now he's going to play cards and win. And I have never – have you ever been to Vegas? I have. And granted, I haven't been to 1960s Vegas. I was in Vegas a few years ago. This looked nothing like what I experienced when I was there or anything that I would imagine it would have been several years ago. It's a set. It's a soundstage somewhere. Yeah. So, I mean, it is what it is. He doesn't do anything to try to blend in. I mean, he's yeah. clearly he's there to win, and it's pretty clear to anybody looking. He's cheating, right? I mean, you know yeah. he's cheating, right? <laughs> yeah, I've never gambled, but I told my husband, I'm like, every movie I've seen where someone, if you start winning too much, they're they're gonna be on to you. They're gonna arrest you, or they're gonna take you out back. Like you can't just do that. But he's all brazen about it, and he starts even hassling the dealer. He's like, "You're gonna let me win because I can win." So of course this attracts a bunch of attention, and they end up having a fight. And I think at this point. His glasses get torn off, and this is the first time you see his totally messed up eyes. And he has these black and gold contacts on that are just freaky. And I can't even imagine in 1962 or whatever how hard and awful those full, like full lens contacts would have been in your eyes. But um, it looked pretty painful. I had the exact same thought. And I can't imagine wearing a full scleral contact now right. and not feeling uncomfortable. And I'm thinking back then using their technology. And he's yes. an older guy. So, yes. oh, man, you're asking a lot. But he did it. Yep. And Corman said he did great. He had nothing but good things to say about how uh, the conditions that Milland worked in, considering that, you know, in the mid 40s, Milland was the highest paid Paramount actor. You know, he had been Hollywood royalty. And now he's doing this Corman film under those circumstances and the crazy contacts and the super, you know, 
using the second or third take and that kind of stuff. So he did great with it, but that is a pretty unsettling scene with his black eyeballs with the gold irises. Then he, he, th- he, all of that hard work of earning that money, he then takes his money and chucks it into the crowd to escape the crowd. <laughs> and then he, and he literally runs out the building which is apparently some kind of a sportsman's lounge in San Francisco. They never got to Vegas for the scene, but he runs out of this casino. And I think that's the last time we see Diana, isn't it? Pretty sure. Yeah. I mean, he's off on his own at this point. And again, he's on the run. He grabs a car, carjacks somebody mm-hmm. and he starts driving and he can't really see. And he's just, and then there's all of a sudden there's a helicopter chasing him. <laughs> that confused me. Yeah. The, the helicopter shows up and it's like, but, but, but how did okay? Yeah, you just I have don't. to let it go at that point. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't understand that, and I couldn't tell was he crazy or was he just exhausted? Was he didn't have a plan? That's but, true. And this is definitely where you feel like the film is padding out the runtime a little bit because this chase scene isn't very exciting, but it certainly goes on for a while. The ultimate crash, I thought, was <laughs> pretty. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was a low budget thing, you know. Whatever you, you put the flash of. I don't know, breaking glass, like a drawing yeah, of breaking drawing. glass breaks on the screen. Glass. And then, and then you- it's an upside down car and he climbs up. Exactly. And yeah. <laughs> that was great. That was great. I mean, talk about a money saver right there. They didn't have to crash a car. He climbs out, climbs over some barbed wire, and they're showing you his, his vision and he really can't see anything. I mean, you could just see bright lights. He can't see figures, for instance, like people. And he manages to stumble into this desert prairie revival church. Um, can't remember if it was a tent or an actual building. It, it, well, I think it was supposed to be a tent. I mean, the way it was. Well, I don't know if we ever saw the outside, did we? I can't remember. Yeah. But it's that style, that, that kind of old style revival meeting with the preacher up there talking about how we hate sin and we've got to get rid of Satan and all this. And I will say that um, probably 30 minutes into the film, I already figured out how the film was going to end as far as the resolution to the problem. And I think probably anyone watching the film knows where it's going to go, but maybe not. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Well, at this point, too, his eyes are full on black. Yes. And why why do people find that so creepy? That's in films today with demonic possession and uh, fully black eyes. That is apparently something that scares people. I find it a little unnerving myself. <laughs> um, I, I think the the black with the gold circles were scarier to me in the film. Uh huh. But but, yeah. <laughs> but flat out blacked out eyes. I don't know. Do they not do it for you? I just wonder what's going on with the human psychology that we find that so scary. If someone listening hasn't seen this film and you type in "man with the X-ray eyes" and you do an image search, you will find a bunch of pictures of him with his black eyes. And yeah, they're they're creepy. Yeah. So at this point, he is one messed up little dude. Yeah, you've got a, a preacher up there ranting. John Dirkis or Durkis, he was a character actor that Corman loved. And he starts quoting, I don't know the actual scripture, but he starts saying, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. No, before he says that, that's when Ray Milan does the monologue about, this is the what you're calling the Lovecraftian monologue. Yes, yeah. Right. About basically seeing these, you know, to paraphrase, he talks about seeing God or seeing something yeah. out there beyond yeah. all of this. and. I love that as this is all happening and he goes up to the preacher and he talks about what you do to offending guys, two police officers do show up. And I guess, and Diane's there with him too, I guess. Okay, I couldn't remember if yeah. she showed okay. And even though they're there to get this guy who was driving crazy all over the road, they still stop, respectfully take off their hat, you know, because they're in a yeah. place of worship. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know if that would really happen either. 
but um, okay. Yeah, it reminds me of we just watched Batman versus Superman, and I, I will not say much about that except there's a scene where Batman's fighting a bunch of guys, and they all respectfully wait their turn before they jump on Batman. You know, one at a time, guys. So yeah, like, <laughs> they, they come in and they're like, "Let's let him finish his crazy monologue. Let's let's let let's see how this plays out, right? Like he's already wanted for murder, and you know he's crazy, he's sick, um, he just got in a car crash. But let let's see how this goes." So, yeah, at that point, the preacher tells them, you've seen sin. And, and um, Matthew or whatever says, if, if thine eye offends thee, pluck it out. And, and then the congregation starts creepily chanting, pluck it out, pluck it out. And, <laughs> you know, he leans down, he tears his eyes out. And the last scene of the film is his, which I had forgot to ask you if spoilers were. That's were right. okay. No, that's yeah, right. he tears out his eyes. And, and unfortunately, they could have spent a little bit more money on the, the bloody eyeball effect. I think they just used a, a drawing for his eyes. Like they. Yeah, they, there wasn't really anything uh, special about it, to be honest. Actually, we've seen so much. We've seen these awesome contacts at work. We've seen yeah. we've seen a little bit of blood when he cuts the yes. surgery, and, you yes. know, that sort of thing. So, and we don't see anything. I was going to ask you. You said you watched it with the Roger Corman commentary. Yes. Doesn't he say that they shot more that they ended up not using in the commentary? I didn't remember him saying that. You're talking about um, the speech. No, I've read somewhere, and I watched the trailers from Hell version of okay. the trailer of this as well, and they talk about. There was a rumor at one point, or Roger Corman himself may have said that they actually shot, you know, the, the eyes out of his head. They actually, you see the eyes. Yeah, and, and he and says I, something I along the lines of, "You know, I can still see." Ah, uh, oh, yeah, I, he did say that. I didn't realize that's where that I could still see. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that would that'd be a bummer. Yeah, so um, they didn't in the final version. He they didn't say whether it solved his problem or not to tear his eyes out. He did a very tidy job tearing his eyes out. Very clean. Yeah. He's clearly a doctor. Yeah. He knows how to do it. (laughs) But um, it it ends a little unsatisfying there because I wonder if he's like, Oh, Oh, that's much better. I I feel great. All right. Let's get some Bactine on these. And uh, (laughs) yeah, I don't know if that solved this problem or not. That's the solution. I don't, well, he'll be able to sleep at least. I mean, you mentioned, you don't know if he's insane or if he's just really tired. He says earlier he can't sleep because he's seeing through his own eyelids. Yes, that sucks. Yeah. Maybe one of the reasons this film spooked me is because I have had sleep problems in my life. You know, with his problem, there's probably no drug you could take to somehow be able to get a respite. So I don't know. I just found the idea of seeing deeper and deeper and not being able to get a break. I just found that terrifying and I loved it. I mean, it's something that I don't think they talk about too much in a lot of the classic like Invisible Man movies, that if you can see through things, you you aren't going to be able to close your eyes to sleep. Exactly. You know, I mean, I think they do touch on that in uh, Hollow Man, the Kevin Bacon film. Okay, I never saw Hollow Man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're like, "Eh." yeah. (laughs) And actually, The Invisible Man is one of my absolute favorites. My daughter and I, um, my 14 year old and I, we watch that one a couple times a year. We love it. So, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So that was the gist of The Man with the X ray Eyes. And I guess the Blu ray that came out a couple, what, 2015, the Kino Blu ray has um, a film historian's commentary. Right. And, yeah, and that's um, what I have. It's, and, and, and I haven't had a chance to watch either of those. Uh, it does have the uh, trailers from hell with, I think it's Mick Garris doing it. 
Okay. And if people, if you haven't watched any of the trailers from Hell, they're fantastic. Just look them up on YouTube. They're great. I think he talks a little bit about it. It does have the Roger Corman commentary, and I believe it's Tim Lucas who does the other commentary yes. track, which I yeah. want to listen to because I'm a big fan of what he does with Video Watchdog. There's also a prologue on the Blu-ray, and I don't remember seeing this the one time I saw it in the theater. But there's this bit, this maybe maybe five, six, seven minutes, and it's talking about man and his senses and how he interprets the world and the sense of touch and sound and smell and all these other things. And they have babies screaming and alarms going off to demonstrate what sound is and mm-hmm. like the smell of perfume in the air. And then they have a couple of shots of Ray Milland wandering around at the end of the movie. So they're kind of spoiling the film yeah. at the end of the movie before he goes into the revival meeting with his eyes all messed up talking about sight. And... I don't know if it really added anything to the film. There was some narration, which is, I guess, kind of cool. But I don't know. Have you seen that? Was that on the DVD? No, um, I no, I haven't seen that. And I, I rarely um, listen to commentaries. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't watch that many films. I have a, a very busy life and raising a family and all that stuff. But um, I will say that for a film like this, like that I've seen several times, putting on the commentary, you know, while I'm doing something else, like while I'm hand sewing or whatever, is a wonderful way to um, – you know, I'm I'm kind of getting into commentaries, and I didn't used to give them time because I'd have to watch. I have to watch another movie. I'm not going to watch that movie again. So um, definitely like the Roger Corman commentary, and I will say it's the first time I've ever listened to him. And he, you know, he's really just talking about how the film was made. He hardly talked about the themes at all. And I thought that was pretty interesting because I always like to talk about the subjective experience of a film, what it meant to me or what it's what it meant for the time or what the colors looked like or the feelings were that were evoked by the film. Not so much the actual technical, how was the film put together? And um, I've listened to your podcasts and I, I noticed you've got kind of a balance of the two, you know, talking about the technical aspects of the film, but also the analysis of the film, which has very little to do with the intention of the the people making the film. And I do like that. I mean, I I do some work with Dorado Films, and I was actually just out of the office last week because we're putting some Blu-rays together for some future upcoming movies. And we were talking about commentary tracks and what do people want out of these things? Do we mm-hmm. want just a straight-up technical making of, or do you want kind of an analysis and, and what it yeah. means now, that sort of thing. And, and I feel there should be a balance, that you could have a balance. I think John Carpenter's commentary tracks on his films are fantastic for that reason. Okay. Uh, the Roger Corman stuff is great. Tim Lucas does a great job on everything that I've heard him do. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do try to balance it. And that's one of the reasons why one of the first things I ask somebody is, when was the first time you saw this? Just so I can kind of start to get into that as opposed to, they started on this day. They shot this scene. They right, went, right, you know, right. that's what, which is also fascinating to me because right. you know, I used to think I was going to be a filmmaker when I grew up, so I pay attention to that thing. Well, all of it's fascinating. Yeah. And I've listened to a few different film podcasts, and some of them are almost only talking about the themes. There's a there's a really great podcast called The Faculty of Horror, which is two Canadian women that are in – they're somehow – they're college professors or something. And when they talk about a film, they do a lot of older films. Um, they don't talk about how the film was made very much. You know, they, they give a little bit of a backstory, but it's mostly about the themes of the film. And then you look at something like the B-movie cast, which doesn't talk about themes very much at all. You know, it talks about the all of the characters in the film, all of the players, you know, the producers, the directors. So I, I like it all. But I was sort of surprised to hear that Roger Corman, he didn't seem that interested <laughs> interested in talking about the themes he was talking about all the ways that he could make a film really cheaply and it was fascinating it was wonderful and he has a great voice 
Oh, he does. Yeah, he does. I mean, even today in interviews and such, he's he's fantastic. Yeah, he's still with us, still still um, putting out movies, and and we're lucky to have him. Yeah, still producing. I, the last time he was directed anything, I think it was in the early '90s with Frankenstein Unbound, which okay. I actually really enjoy. At least I think I do. I haven't seen it in years, but I remember really enjoying it when I saw it last. I'll have to um, check that one out. But, uh, yeah, he's producing a lot now, and a lot of them are remakes, you know, and the shark movies for sci-fi. But, you know, whatever. He, he's still out there making movies, making money. He mentioned that this one might get a remake, that somebody's looking into that. And he also said that this is one he would have liked to have been able to spend more on the special effects. And I could see that. Um, yeah, I could see that, too. I think the film was fine with, with the budget that it had, to be honest. So I, I think so, too. I I could see throwing a little bit more money maybe at some of the visions, some of what he's actually seeing. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't want to get too bogged down in that because I think no. really the movie lives and dies on Ray Milan. Absolutely. I was about to say, I mean, the the strain that he starts to show and the way he changes, he doesn't go mad or evil like a mad scientist film. He, I think of him as just being extremely fatigued. But I don't know. Maybe he's gone crazy. But he doesn't seem to do anything too mean-spirited at any point in the film. No. When he flings his buddy out the window, it wasn't because he was trying to kill him. It was just... Horrible accident. Like, yeah. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he... So Ray Milans, do we have a minute to talk about him or are we... Um, oh, no. Please, please. Yeah, I, so- I want to... Because I don't know as much about him as I should, especially since he's done a handful of these movies. And like I mentioned earlier, I love Panic in Year Zero. Big fan of that yeah, one. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. And oh, that it's so good. He directed 60s. that. Yeah. Um, I think it was his second film he directed. I don't know that much about him either. I know he was born in either 1905 or 1907. I know that his first major film was The Flying Scotsman in 1929. And I know that around that time he realized, because I think he, I don't know what he did for work, but he was like an infantry man. He was a marksman. You know, he was some macho Welsh dude. Starts getting (laughs) into the concept of being an actor, gets into The Flying Scotsman. And then I think he realized he wanted more talent. So he got involved on stage and that's where I was a little impressed by his story because he took acting seriously. He, he got into, he tried to get a little bit of, um, of skill on the stage and he, and he has a very stage like presence, especially in his films in like the forties, you know, when his career was at, you know, apex. And of course, most people know the lost weekend in 1945 where he plays a, um, a writer who's an alcoholic and, and it's a weekend in his life. I have to say that is one of my absolute favorite films of all time. You know, I, I have to admit, I've never seen it. It's so wonderful. Alcoholism is a subject near and dear to my heart, and it's one of my favorite films on the topic. Pretty much carries that. He's the main actor in that film, um, a few other supporting players. I haven't seen the film in a couple of years, but I've watched it a few times. He ended up, you know, getting an Oscar, first Welsh actor to get an Oscar. Oh, wow. And I think he has the shortest acceptance speech of any Oscar winner on record. He just got up and bowed and took his um, Oscar, I think, because he was nervous. And at that point, that's when he was uh, Paramount's highest paid actor. And I think at that point, he starts to, his career starts to, you know, slide gently down into where he ends up in, you know, some of these like character actor type of things in the 70s and the the late 60s. He was also in Dial M for Murder. Right. Have you talked about a lot of Hitchcock on your show? We haven't done any Hitchcock on Monster Kid Radio. I'm always down for that if if you ever need to do that. But if I ever need to, yeah. (laughs) But there aren't monsters, right? You there? Well, you know, I I, it's Monster Kid Radio, but I'm always like it's genre cinema of yesteryear. So yeah, I think I could justify a little bit of Hitchcock. 
So yeah, Dial in for Murder, 1954, and it's inexplicably my favorite Hitchcock film. I don't know why. I mean, but it is. I just love it. I think because it's the only Hitchcock film where I wanted the villain to get away with it. (laughs) And I did. I didn't necessarily want him to murder his wife. Right. But I wanted him to get away with having tried to murder his wife. (laughs) (laughs) And that was Hitchcock's only 3D film. What does that say about you, Kellyanne? I don't know. Don't look. (laughs) Uh, don't look into the themes of Kelly Hogaboom. You okay. don't want to look. Okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> but yeah, that was um, my husband. That's an example of a film where my husband walks in on Dial M for Murder and he's like, why are you watching this? Nothing's happening because <laughs> it's all in like two rooms, right? Yeah, but that's what's – oh, man. I'm like, there's so much happening. Mm-hmm. It's like what Eddie Izzard says about British cinema. Yeah, it's like there's so much going on here. And then he ended up uh, – the year after that, he directed his first film. That's a Western called A Man Alone and that's a really good one. He stars and directs A Man Alone. I think that's probably, besides The Man with X-Ray Eyes, everything else I've seen of him was from the 40s. Okay. Then, of course, I've seen Frogs and The Thing with Two Heads from 1972. (laughs) (laughs) Regrettably, I've seen those films. And actually, uh, I will be covering Frogs down the line with uh, (laughs) Andy Campbell from Kaiju 101 podcast in the future. That's coming up. So, listeners, hold your breath. Suppose nature gave a war. And everybody came. The snakes, the birds, the lizards and frogs. And suppose that the polluters, the species on Earth called man, were the enemy in that war. I still believe man is master of the world. And then, suppose that the human race lost. I will be listening to that one. <laughs> Sam Elliott, uh, without his mustache and without his shirt the whole time. Which so. I, I can't imagine Sam Elliott without a mustache. I just I can't. Yeah. I can't wrap my head around it. It's not a good idea, but but yeah. <laughs> I don't know. A lot of women really like Sam Elliott. Any ladies who are listening, you should watch Frogs for the, for the Sam Elliott beefcake effect. <laughs> or any guys who are into that sort of thing. Hey, okay, there you go, man. And then another couple films I like of uh, Ray Milan's is uh, Reap the Wild Wind from 1942 alongside John Wayne. All right. The Big Clock from 1948. That's a really good sort of a noir-flavored drama. It's excellent. And The Uninvited from 1944, which is a ghost story. Yeah, that one's great. It is. Again, I got to say, Panic in Year Zero, excellent movie. I'm Uh, writing that one down. Yeah. It's him. uh, Frankie Avalon plays his son. Uh, and he does a fantastic job as well. I mean, when you think Frankie Avalon, sometimes you think, well, he's just a beach guy. But no, he's fantastic in that as well. Uh, it's got great music by Les Baxter. It's a cool little story. My wife and I actually talked about it years ago when I was doing the Mail Order Zombie podcast during one of our post-apocalyptic summers. Because it's it's just so cool. I love it. And it's well, also I, on Blu-ray. So. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check that one out. But it's like... You know, I might know a tiny bit more about Ray Milan than you do, but I don't know anything about him. And he has a huge career. I mean, yes. he was in a lot of films. And TV. Yeah. Uh, he did do an episode of Night Gallery, which is great. Right. I've seen that one. And that's a great okay. episode. So the hand of, uh, uh, I'd have to double check, but it's a great episode. Awesome. <laughs> he, he does pretty cool on that. And I think he did a hit, one of the Hitchcock shows, did a lot of television. You know, and I grew up without a television and I've never owned a television. So I'm more of a movie person, 
But now that we have Netflix and streaming and all of that, the the lines between television and movie are just blurred at this point. I just finished watching Penny Dreadful. Mm. It's like, I guess that's a television show, right? But it's on Netflix. So that's how I, or not Netflix, Showtime. But that's how I found it was, you know, online and Peaky Blinders. And, you know, there's all these shows that used to be you'd have to own a television set to see it. And now you can watch it streaming. So I've never owned a television set in my life. Wow. I, yeah. I couldn't imagine that. Yeah, I was. Wow. I was. I, raised I know there by are people books. like you were what? <laughs> I was raised by books, not TV. It's oh, kind of okay. sad. Yeah. No, that's no, not great. sad. Books are great too. We love books. <laughs> I know, but books, yeah. books are good. No, I just mm, couldn't imagine it. But you're right. I mean, with with the access to a lot of this material now through Netflix streaming, Amazon, Roku, Sling TV, all this stuff, I think you can get away without a television. I, we consider it every once in a while, and then we realize we probably miss things on me tv or something and just, oh yeah okay. me TV i realize is, it yeah <laughs> me tv is my one like sad because there's no uh, as far as i know there's no way for me to see it at all like and certainly not legally so i don't get i don't get any Sven in my life you know that kind of thing but it's not worth getting a tv um for me but that's all right one day one day maybe it'll be somewhere that i can watch it so you can watch dvds and blu-rays though Yes, okay. I can. And this movie yeah. is on Blu-ray. You mentioned it earlier. Uh, Kino put it out. It looks really good. I yeah. thought the Blu-ray was a really good transfer. I'm pretty pleased with what Kino Lorber and Kino Redemption have been doing with a lot of their older movies. My wallet's not so pleased by it. Right. <laughs> right. Keep putting stuff out. but I know. And I'm not much of a collector. Um, everything I own is on our server, and I don't have very many physical copies of Whenever I listen to B movie uh, podcasts, I'm always amazed at how mu- how large people's collections are. That is a lot of um, cash that you're putting out there. But mm-hmm. yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It eats into my cat rescue funds. You know, I can't have that. So. No, that's true. I mean, priorities, man. Crazy cat lady. So yeah, yeah nothing wrong with that. We love our cats around here at Monster Kid Radio. That's why you and I get along, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Then we like the same kind of movies. But other than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Kelly, this was a lot. Is there anything else about the film uh, before we wrap up that we want to mention other than people, you got to see this movie. I know we kind of did a step-by-step or at least high-level overview, and we may have spoiled it if you haven't seen the film. But Ray Moland offers so much. The music is cool. The special effects are fun. Yeah, I just think if you're a Corman fan and you haven't seen it yet, um, you've got to check this one out. It's it's very well put together. Gorgeous, gorgeous colors, a fun score. And like I said, yeah, Ray Moland is just excellent. And it's nice and spooky. And, you know, I wouldn't say it's totally family friendly. Like if you have a kid who's sensitive, you wouldn't want to watch it. But it's, you know, for my kids, my teenage kids, it's fine. Yeah, it's a good, good family movie. <laughs> good spooky family movie. So, yeah. No, I agree. I think it's it's got a lot to offer a lot of people. And I think you're right. I mean, it can get a little intense in bits, but... Otherwise, I think it's overall uh, a pretty family-friendly film. I mean, even the nudity scenes, like I said, yeah. you just see shoulders and legs. Yeah, it's a silly scene, not a sexy and, scene. And yeah. pearls. Yeah, pearls. Yeah, you can't see through those, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what he should have done is just created some sort of pearl eyeglass thing so he oh could my sleep. God. Right? Brilliant. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, this was a lot of fun. I'm so oh. glad we made this happen. It's been too long since we started talking about having you on. We gotta have you on again in the in the in the future, and we won't wait nearly as long. Yeah, as absolutely. Time. And thank you. And I have to say, I mean, I haven't done a call in 
or anything since Vince Rotolo passed. That that was rough. That has been really hard on um the on the B movie community. I have missed participating with with the B movie um, scene. So I might have to um, jump into MKR a little a little deeper. And I want to mm. thank you. You have you have such a great show and you have such a great positive energy. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I don't I love these films. I can't even imagine how much work it is to put it together. So I just want to thank you for all that you do. Well, thank you. It's a labor of love. How about that? Is that is that yeah. too cheesy to say? Too no, cliche? I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love doing it. I do have the lineup for Hot August Frights. If if you've got me, if you've got a minute for me, yeah, to- yeah, you mentioned that earlier, and I did make a note here. So Hot August Frights, August thirteenth. 7th Street Theater in Hoquiam, Washington. And anyone who's interested, um, hit me up on Facebook. I'm happy to meet meet up with you, show you around Hoquiam and Aberdeen here in, on the coast. It's gorgeous out here. But uh, it's all day long, like little film festival, starting with Spider Baby, then The Bat. My friend and I are showing up to The Bat dressed in our 90s, like Agnes Moorhead, like we're fully showing up in costume for The nice. Bat. Yeah. Um, Tarantula at 11, The Killer Shrews, A Bucket of Blood, Kingdom of the Spiders, a little Shatner cheese there. The Deadly Mantis, which if you're a Mystery Science Theater fan like me, you've probably seen that film about 20 times. And then Eight-Legged Freaks, What to Do in a Zombie Attack. I have not seen that film. And we end up with The Lost World at 10 p.m. So it's a pretty cool lineup. Wow. Yeah. No, that's, that's, I mean, I could see just going for the day for me. Just, yeah. Wow. And the theater, if you haven't seen the 7th Street Theater, it is amazing. It is a gorgeous historic theater that they've put a lot of money into, and it's looking really good. Well, I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes, so people need to check that out. Wow. I, so I just, I'm looking right now. That theater's been around since 1928, so it's got to look cool. Yeah, and when I first moved to the area in 84, it was falling apart. And there's a group of people who've put so much time and written, you know, grants, and they have that thing in tip top shape. So it's, it's gorgeous. And we have, you know, popcorn with, with real butter. And I mean, it's a, it's a great scene. And Hoke Women Aberdeen are super fun. So if you're, if you are in the Pacific Northwest, I know you've got a couple Portland monster kids down there, like definitely hit me up and, and we can make a day of it. Um, or at least, you know, go out to lunch and, and get a movie. So. Only if you guys promise to call into the Monster Kid Radio voicemail and let me know how it goes. I will. All right. Absolutely. Cool. Cool. That's awesome. Well, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Listeners, if you're going to check it out, let Kelly know. Let me know. Kelly, thank you so much. And yeah. I know you've got a parade to get to, so I'm going to let you go. Thank you for making this happen, and best of luck with everything. Yeah, and thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. All right. Take care. If I could somehow get myself to all these events all across the country, I would do it in a hot monster minute. Hot August frights up there in Kelly's neck of the woods in Hope William, Washington. Wow. Okay. Just to kind of go over the list again. Spider Baby, The Bat, Tarantula, The Killer Shrews, A Bucket of Blood, Kingdom of the Spiders, The Deadly Mantis, The Eight-Legged Freaks, What to Do in a Zombie Attack, and The Lost World. And the poster for Hot August Frights says this is the classic The Lost World, not the Jurassic Park sequel. Again, that's happening on Saturday, August 13th at the 7th Street Cinema. $5 to get into a single movie, $15 for an all-day pass starting at 8 a.m., going through, well, I'm assuming midnight that day, to run through all of these films. Man, what a lineup. Kelly, thank you for telling us about this lineup, and thank you for being part of Monster Kid Radio. Finally, we got you on the show, and and we definitely have to have you back on the show in the future. <laughs> The artist 
the poet. The figure model, who loves to show it. You suppose he could be physically attracted to her? No, man, he ain't the type. He don't get enough vitamin E. All these are beat. All these you'll meet in a bucket of blood. Let us make the scene. Crazy. Come, enjoy yourself. <laughs> Where the hilarious enjoy the horrifying. In a bucket of blood. Now you're gonna shoot me, don't you? Come to the land of living dreams. Where realists dream of the unreal. Walter, you've done something to me. Something deep down inside of my prana. Oh, Walter, I want to be with you. You're creative. Beatniks at their bawdiest. The creative urge at its most primitive. I'm deeply moved. And I shall compose a poem. Love is art. Art is love. It's the weirdest and the wildest. I don't want to make statues anymore. I, I want to get married. To you. Come closer, closer, that's right, I'm Vincent Price, you'll be just as safe in this house of fear as any of the other five victims murdered by the bat. In all of the annals of mystery there's never been a more elusive, fearsome and cunning killer. He'll lure you through hidden passages to make you his next victim. But nobody lives forever, so why be afraid of the bat? How long has he been dead? Oh, I'd say about a half an hour. Do you believe it was the bat? That's a bat's trademark. Perhaps he's still in the house. That's possible. It says here that the bat never leaves no fingerprints. That's understandable. Having no face, he probably has no fingers either. waiting for you. I am Count Drahoon. Vampire, mad scientist, and host of Count Rahun's Feature of Fright, 
a bi-monthly podcast presenting you with original horror plays for your screaming, I mean listening pleasure. Just go to camcordertv.com, scroll to our podcast tab, and click on Count Rahun's Feature of Fright to hear our frightful tales. Also available on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and PodBay. I'd like to direct your attention to our website at monsterkidradio.net, which is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. There's links to everything we've got going on, as well as our contact information. Our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. And you know what? That voicemail line, you can call it from anywhere, which means that if you are going to a convention, if you're at an event with classic monster movies, if you're with an actor, an actress, a director of some of these classic monster movies and you want to call in, we would love to share that with the listeners of Monster Kid Radio. I know G-Fest is coming up this weekend, so just saying, you know, call from the show, let us know how it's going. Or you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Now, we have links to everything else like our Facebook page, every song that's appeared here on the show, our Patreon campaign. And there's a place for you to subscribe to the Monster Kid Radio Gazette, which is our monthly e-news letter. And actually, I need to go in there and change that because it's going to become bi-monthly, which means you're going to get June and July's edition at once. Six e-issues a year. It's free. Monster Kid Radio, Monster Kid content, straight to your email box. Before we wrap up, I just want to give a shout out to somebody who used to listen to the show. His name is Jesse Acosta. Uh, he used to live up in Washington, and unfortunately, he lost his battle with cancer. And I just wanted to, you know, thank him for being part of the Monster Kid Radio audience. He actually sent me some artwork, some really cool postcards a while back, versions of some prints that he had done for an art show back in October of 2014 at the Blue Door Theater and Giant Nerd Books. And I believe that was in Spokane, Washington. Jesse had a very young son, less than two years old, had just gotten married not too long ago, was on his way to starting a monster family, and, well, a real-life monster got in the way. So, Jesse, thank you for being part of the Monster Kid Radio listening audience, and our thoughts and love to your family still here. Next week on Monster Kid Radio, we have got a couple of different things that I can do. You know, I mentioned conventions while monster bash was last weekend and rod barnett the man from the nashi cast he went and he got us a recording from friend of monster kid radio frank j dello strito he's a bela lugosi expert he's an author he's a big old monster kid and he had a presentation that he did at monster bash that rod captured on audio for us so i think that's what's going to happen next week stay tuned to monsterkidradio.net and our facebook page because that's where we make all of our announcements about upcoming shows and other events like the Fathom Events screening of Planet of the Apes, the original that's happening, man, August 24th. Because it's Fathom Events, it means you can see it, well, pretty much any theater that's bringing in these Fathom streams. It's going to be cool. TCM's involved. going to be a little bit of an introduction and commentary about the movie before we dive into a really cool-looking transfer of the movie itself. Monster Kid Radio is crashing the Cedar Hills 16 movie theater here in Beaverton, Oregon. I've got an event set up over on Facebook. If you're in the area, I would love to meet you at the theater for the afternoon show on Sunday, the 24th. I recommend getting your tickets 
early because this is happening all across the country. However, if you go and see it, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So again, call them in. Let us know what you think. Oh, and one more thing. I just received confirmation that I'm going to be one of the guests at this year's HP Lovecraft Film Festival and CthulhuCon here in Portland, Oregon. I love the Lovecraft Film Festival. I've been going every year for the past... Man, I've lost track. I always have a great time. And to be part of the show again, to be asked back as a guest, a potential panelist, somebody giving a presentation, don't know what exactly I'm going to be doing yet. It's just an honor. And I hope that I can bring some classic Monster Kid goodness to the proceedings. That's happening at the Hollywood Theater here in Portland, Oregon, October 7th through the 9th. Check them out at hplfilmfestival.com. I need to get this show out. I've made you guys and gals wait long enough. So let's go ahead and wrap up. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Thanks again to Kelly for being part of the show again and for providing those audio clips which appeared on this podcast as part of that whole fair use thing. The song Enigma of the Deep appears on Monster Kid Radio courtesy of the band The Amp Fibians, and that's A-M-P as in amp, you know, it's a musical thing. And then Fibians, F-I-B-I-A-N-S. They have a Facebook page, and you can buy their new album, Enigma of the Deep, on cdbaby.com. There will be a link to that in the show notes. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 